When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. Now, we love cult films here, and the one we're doing this week is probably one of the most legendary cult films of all time. So stick around. We're going to have all that and more this week on It Happened in Hollywood. Walter Hill is a director who's been in the business pretty much since the 60s. He started in the mailroom at Universal, then he got into a training program at the Directors Guild, and then he went on to become an assistant director and a screenwriter and a director in his own right. He's probably best known for having rewritten Alien and becoming a producer on the first three of that trilogy. And then he went on to this film, The Warriors, that established him as quite a formidable force. Later, he did 48 Hours, and he's done dozens of films since then. He's now 80, and he has a new film that's still out in theaters, Dead for a Dollar, a Western. And he describes most of his films as Westerns. The Warriors, which he directed in 1978, was inspired by actually an ancient Greek text, by Xenophon, who was a Greek soldier who also wrote. And the story is Anabasis, and it's basically a war story. Then Saul Urich, an author, he transposed that story to modern New York and imagined, instead of an army of ancient Greeks, he imagined gang members split up into different sects, each one wearing their own costume and controlling their own area of the five boroughs. That book, The Warriors, came across Walter's desk, and together with the producer, Lawrence Gordon, they presented it to Paramount, who decided that it was a promising property for the youth audience that they were trying to hit. The whole thing came together pretty quickly. What Walter came up with is a part sci-fi, part western, part post-apocalyptic view of New York that's never quite been attempted until then and hasn't been attempted since. It was sort of sneered at a bit by critics when it first came out because it's so pulpy and Walter very consciously applied comic book aesthetics to it. 
But as we all know, comic book movies are now the norm and the main and the most popular version. And his whole aesthetic and approach to the material is very much ahead of its time. And perhaps that's why The Warriors has become such an enduring classic and such a major cult film with regular screenings and people dressing up as the characters and quoting lines and it's up there with all of them so without further ado here's walter hill the legend telling us about how the warriors from 1979 came to be walter thank you so much for joining us on it happened in hollywood my pleasure um, now, we will get to the matter at hand in a moment, but first I want to congratulate you. Um, you had a new film just premiere at the Venice Film Festival called... Um, Dead for a Dollar. Dead for a Dollar. And I just watched it last night, so I, I'm losing my short-term memory, but that's what it is. Dead for a Dollar. It has Willem Dafoe and Rachel Brosnahan and uh, Christoph Waltz and um, an, an all-star array of, of, of mega actors in, in a really uh, gripping um, Western. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. That must have been quite something to premiere that in Venice this year. It was a lot of fun. They, I'm happy to say it was uh, well-received. And, and Venice itself, you know, it's a beautiful place. I've, I've been there before, but it's a very special festival. It's entire. It's not a... It's not a marketplace. It's entirely devoted to um, film and uh, appreciation thereof. And you received a, an award, did you not? A, a Cartier Award? Uh, I did, yes. They were kind enough to not only show my movie, but give me an award. Well, congratulations for that. Thank you. So your career has spanned um, some amazing genres uh in addition to westerns which you've done before you've done uh comedies like the 48 hour films uh 48 hours films with uh, eddie murphy and nick nolte and um you were a co-producer on the first aliens and i believe your your name is if there's an alien film your name is usually on it is that correct well yes i should clarify that the um i really haven't had anything to do with the alien franchise after the first three movies. Um, my partner and I, David Geiler, got into, shall we say, a disagreement with Fox about the way the future stories should go. And it was decided that we would get, um, in their words, a divorce. And in, <laughs> the, in the separation, we retained an ownership position, but uh, they insisted that we that they still wanted to use our names on the films that were made in the franchise. So I, I really even haven't even seen any of the movies uh, other than the last two that Ridley did uh, in after the first three. So uh, my participation is zero. Beyond, beyond those, as I say, beyond the three. Well, the franchise took a strange turn around Prometheus. I know that some people love it, some people don't. But uh, I think we can all agree the first three are the best three. So those are the ones you want your name on. Uh, yeah, if I'm going to choose, I definitely choose the first three. 
But that, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about what is arguably your most mythologized, maybe most admired film, certainly most talked about, stood the test of time, and that's The Warriors, a film that almost defies characterization. I can't think of any, many other films like it, except maybe the Mad Max films, in terms of well, genre. it is a hard one to kind of put, put a... I mean, it's a dystopian look at a near-future world that's kind of, it's certainly not realistic. It's comic booky, but it's based on a historical event 2,000 years old and uh, 2,500 years old. Uh, so it doesn't, uh, and at the same time, it's kind of a um, teenage adventure story. So it, it's, a, it's a hard one to put a rope around, I, I grant. It is still, I have to say this, I've made movies since the middle 1970s. It's still the movie that people come up to me and ask me about, and, and strangers and all that, more than, more than any other. And, and it's not even close. Um, it continues to, sometimes quite amazing to me, but um, it's revived and shown in, you know, these cult houses and things like that. As a matter of fact, I was in uh, Italy last summer, Bologna, and they showed um, in the Plaza Maggiore uh, in Bologna, they had a, set up one of those big football stadium screens and they showed the Warriors to, I think it was about 7,000 people that showed up to watch it, uh, very pleasant circumstances outside, warm night. And I was a little, uh, <laughs> I was, you know, I haven't really seen the movie in a long time. And I was thinking, Jesus, uh, all these people, you know, um, this is something I did 40 years ago. Not too sure how it's gonna hold up or how it's gonna look and uh, but I have to say that it played very well. I was enormously pleased with the crowd reaction. And um, then John Landis, uh, a couple nights later, showed the Blues Brothers, same, same thing, Plaza Maggiore. And uh, John's movie, he told me, drew 10,000 people. So... <laughs> <laughs> So it was a temporary victory, but um. <laughs> it really is a special film, and um, you know, I, I I think it's just the way you commit to the kind of absurdity of it, and everyone takes it entirely seriously, and um, you execute this this grand. Uh, it's a, it's a scavenger hunt. It's a it's a it's a flag war. It's 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 um, a death race. It's everything. And uh, they're split up into their teams and their costumes. So you have a bit of professional wrestling there. Um, there is a sporting element to it where you're cheering on the team you want to win. And uh, it's also a, a snapshot of uh, New York in 1979, where who who doesn't want to see the graffiti strewn streets and subways of New York and, and when, back when New York was still cool. So uh, you've created quite, quite the, uh, the artifact that I think will stand the test of time. And it has, certainly. 
Well, you're very kind. Thank you. But let, let's go back. Uh, you mentioned it's based on something, and I bet most people don't even know that it's based on a classic uh, ancient text. So, so, so what is that? It's text? the uh, Xenophon's March. Xenophon's March of the Ten Thousand. Uh, Xenophon was a Greek general who was commissioned uh, to bring a mercenary army to uh, what we think of as modern Turkey. The uh, the Great Plains, and uh, to support uh, Cyrus the Second, if I get, I maybe may get some of this a little wrong, but anyway, in the battles that followed, the army was forced to retreat. Uh, uh, this army of ten thousand was forced to retreat across the. Uh, what is it, the Aeolian Plain, and until they reached the ocean, where when they got to the sea, they knew they were safe because they were Greeks and they could build a ship and go home. So that's that's a true story, and that was the basis of, um, it's often referred to as the Anabasis, and um, that was the origin of our film. And so then the author Saul Urich turns uh, that story into a, a novel in 1965. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, in the novel, the novel is uh, kind of a social protest novel. Urich um, was not terribly pleased with the movie. Uh, I don't know how to put it. The comic book aspects, the the kind of uh, attempts at the dazzle were not what he had in mind. He had a, a rather serious social document. I thought the movie would not hold that way, and so I just used it as a jumping-off place, in all due respect. But, um, but there was a scene in the book where one of the... Uh, one of the they're the dominators in the book. They're not called the warrior. One of them is looking at a comic book, and the comic book is telling the story of Xenophon and the Ten Thousand. And in one of those quick moments that one uh, wishes you had every day, I said, that's exactly how we do the movie. We'll do it as a comic book. We'll be as accurate as we can on the various events. Every, uh, if you go back, every incident that happens to the Warriors has some rough equivalent, I believe, in, uh, in the actual story of Xenophon. So if fans of the Warriors want to get even deeper into the text, go read the story of Xenophon. And it's funny, as soon as you mentioned uh, wanting to turn it into a comic book, I thought of 300, which, of course, you know, changed the game with uh, turning, you know, graphic novel into a very successful film. And, and this, I think, uh, has elements of, of that, too. I don't think 300 could have happened without the Warriors. Well, I couldn't say that. I, I certainly enjoyed the 300. Um, uh, I suppose they're loosely connected in a way. I think the, the popularity, uh, the, the Warriors got through to a big audience big world audience and you know sometimes you catch the wave 
And uh, I think that the Warriors did open the possibilities for a lot of offbeat movies to get made. Yeah, I, I mean, you definitely demonstrated an early genius there because the only other uh, superhero movie at the time was Superman, the movie. And uh, But you you saw a, a deeper application of, of comic book uh, aesthetics to, to mainstream film. And... Uh, and you made it work. And and it's interesting to hear that this book sort of had social uh, justice th- thematics to it that you wanted to throw out because you thought uh, audiences won't, don't want to hear that. They just want a good time. And I think a, a lot of the gang uh, well, material there. Well, I didn't there. go that far. I, I thought, you know, I thought that the, I thought that the material wouldn't bear the weight of the full uh, social consciousness of, what Eric was trying to do in with the book, uh, but I do think in the Warriors, one of the reasons for its success was that it was perceived to be uh, by the young audience that went to it a statement about social class, and that uh, an element that had never been. Uh, allowed a voice in in a positive way when people the warriors were certainly not the first game movie made there were many but it's the first one at least that i know of that was made without the perception that the gang was a social problem right the the issue the issue was uh and and the movie's very clear the gang is an organization of self-defense in a hostile world. And and it was not a movie where uh, adults, uh, bourgeois adults, wrung their hands and said, it's terrible that these are not turning out to be lawyers and doctors. And I think that idea caught on and that these people had their own kind of sense of dignity. The, the, the critical scene in this, this idea, uh, developing this idea was the subway scene where they run into the prom couple who are really from a different world. And, uh, and the Mercy character kind of lowers her head, feeling, feeling a vague shame. And Swan sees this and lifts lifts her chin up. You know, we've got nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. And it's all done with looks, and there's no dialogue. And um, I think we shot that scene in about 30 minutes. Um, I don't do a lot of takes, but and we did it very quickly. And it's one of the most remarkable. You know, people ask me about the scene constantly, so... Yeah, because it's the only scene where they seem to interact with, like, quote-unquote, regular New Yorkers. Regular world, yes. Yeah. Everything else is uh, between the gangs and and the cops, who are kind of disposable, in a way, kind of red shirts, the Star Trek universe. Well, the, the cops are... Uh, my theory was we should treat them like they were a hostile gang. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about... Uh, another um, idea ahead of its time. <laughs> um, 
think generally that's the the overarching sentiment these days about law enforcement. But um, let's just go backwards. So you've you've gotten the money from Paramount. Not a lot of money, but they, they've given you a budget to make this thing. Did they give you any marching orders? What were they expecting to come out of it? Well, I think the whole thing was a series of mistakes uh, uh, on their part. <laughs> they thought, I mean, this is remarkable. <laughs> they had, uh, was it Saturday Night Fever had come <laughs> out a year before? Isn't it, you know, the Travolta movie? Of course. And they thought this was in that vein. Right. You know, the kids were from Bro- kids were from Brooklyn. They go to Manhattan, da 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 da. da. Uh, <laughs> and they certainly had no idea what I planned to do with it. And I didn't uh, plan on telling them because I knew if I told them they would cancel the movie. <laughs> uh, we made the movie. Yeah, it was even. We, we had a lot of trouble shooting the movie. Some of it was our fault. Some of it was that we had bad weather. We had some bad luck with uh, a couple of injuries and uh, scheduling problems. But the biggest thing was we thought we could have many more because it was all made, almost all made exterior night. And we were shooting in the summer and the nights are short. And we thought we would get our 11-hour day and and we were shooting an eight-hour day, really. And um, so we fell behind, which infuriated the studio. Uh, it's one of those things, the less budget you have, uh, any overage is treated as disastrous rather than the big-budget movies who are, get away with a lot more. Um, and do, do you remember the budget? Uh, I don't think I was ever, they, they quite often keep it a secret. I think the budget was two something, and I think we ended up at about three something. So we shot, anyway, we got the movie back to the studio. We edited it very quickly. Um, the studio demanded that we be in the theaters by February. I think we finished in October. And um, this was still at a time when post was a little more difficult than it is now. This was before the digital revolution. So just the, the act of editing and was much slower and uh, dubbing, etc. But um, the studio hated, studio absolutely hated the movie. They had a long, serious debate about whether or not they should even release it. And they were in a kind of constant dialogue with me about well, what, some of the things that I wanted to do in post that I had been promised. Uh, they went by the board, so I was not in a good mood. And uh, I probably said a few things that didn't endear me. And so it was just one of those. And then the... Um, they decided they, they cut a trailer that tested very well. And that's actually how the movie got released. So they, uh, they decided to go big with the uh, TV spots on the trailer, put it in a lot of theaters, and hope for the best. They delayed the critic screen because they thought 
that the critics would destroy the movie. And uh, so we, most of the time our, our reviews didn't come out until the following Monday, <laughs> rather than the usual Friday night. And, uh, um, oh, it was, you know, but on the first night we were, we were sold out everywhere and we had a very good run. And if I'm not mistaken, you'd got some good reviews, including from Pauline Kale. Yeah, we got a number of good, much to the, much to the studio shock. Um, <laughs> there was a, a lot of good reviews. Actually, the truth is that the first wave of the reviews, uh, the newspaper first wave was not, the reviews were very mixed. It was the second wave of the magazines that came out that really supported the film. And by that time, the film was controversial, so it became a, a, a cudgel for many of the writers, uh, giving this film a fair shake. So I'm, and I, I always have to say this: uh, Mayor Koch supported the movie. He didn't attack the movie because a lot of people were saying it presented New York in a horrible way. And, and uh, was demeaning to the city of New York, et cetera, et cetera. And Mayor Koch uh, said, oh, it's a movie and it's fun. And there was a big moment that he didn't pick it up and, and uh, go against us. Yeah, it doesn't exactly act as a tourist campaign. <laughs> 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 but... Um... But maybe for some people it did. Yeah, Mayor Koch actually visited our set. And we shot, uh, I think it was two, we, as I say, the movie was made entirely, almost entirely out, outdoors at night. But we did have one sequence we had to build a set for, and we shot at the old Astoria Studios uh, for two days. Uh, and it was the ba bathroom fight on the road roller skates. I'm about halfway into the first day and uh, a, a person from the studio approaches me and says, would it be all right if uh, Mayor Koch and Gloria Swanson visit your set? <laughs> um, I said, As in I, Sunset Boulevard, Gloria yeah, Swanson? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I, I said, you know, run that by me one more time. <laughs> uh, I said, well, sure. I'd be, you know, deeply honored. And Mayor Koch she was, was ready showing for her Gloria Swanson, yeah, through the studio. She had made many of her silent movies there at Astoria Studios. Oh, okay. And somehow they had work this tour out together. And she kind of, I was introduced to her and she was pleasant and then kind of drifted away. And the mayor and I talked for about five minutes. And uh, so I don't know if that kind of smoothed it out for when the movie came out or not. I don't know. But, but uh, Sounds like he was a fan. Well, I think he liked show business. I mean, he was very... Uh, you know, keen on, oh, yeah, that's Cameron. And um, he watched some of the fight and all that. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I understand the book had one of the, the gangs was a gay gang, but you didn't leave that in the film. Did you ever think about doing that? Uh, we never shot it. Mm. Uh, I was sorry. Yeah, and I was, I'm very sorry about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Because what I wanted to show was the gay gang in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't villainous. They were, you know, all the gangs that were chasing, most of them had been told a lie. That the warriors had done this terrible thing. And uh, I can't remember exactly, uh, you know, this is, what, 40 years ago, and there's been a lot of uh, whiskey, blood, and shit that have gone under the bridge since then, but uh, mm-hmm. my memory is not totally perfect. But but it was not a scene that was negative about the gay gang, and I thought it was just another way of kind of staying ahead of things. Yeah, Swan was a prisoner. And he got away, but uh, they had their dignity. But we never shot it because of our budget problems. It wasn't that I cut it out of the movie. Mm -hmm. It never got shot. Yeah, they were the dingoes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a year later, Billy Freakin would make Cruising in New York. So maybe he caught up, made up for lost time. If we could talk a bit about, uh, first of all, the casting of The Warriors, the Warriors are a very progressive group. Uh, they're all different colors, and they work together, and uh, they're kind of an inspiring thing for kids to look up to, I would almost say, <laughs> even though they're, you know, a violent gang. Well, they're, they're adequately adequate in self-defense, shall we say. And they have characters. There are character flaws within the group. I mean, Ajax, James Remar, is not um, an unblemished character. Uh, he's an interesting character, but he's he's a hard case. He's a hard one to love in it. And so, what happens to him? He he tries to uh, to flirt with Mercedes Rule on a on a park bench. You want to show me how you play with the chicks? Yeah. Show you how I play. Hey. Oh, rough. Come on. Don't we'll get it on. Oh, you don't get it. I like it rough. Uh, Your nights in the park are over for a while, honey. You're under arrest. Hey, lady. Come on, lady. She turns out she's a cop and she uh, handcuffs him to the to the bench. And what happens? 
I don't know if uh, we ever uh, see pat- uh, some patrol cops come up, they fight, and he is clubbed down, and one soon's hauled away to the tombs or whatever they they had in the slightly futuristic dystopian New York. <laughs> Mercedes rule. Can't trust her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I enjoyed that scene a lot. And then, of course, Michael Beck is there. Uh, would you say he's the leader? He's the movie star leader? Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. He, he had a rather special look. He, um, he understood the part very well. And uh, he played the stoical Greek aspect of it, I thought, very well but at the same time was a romantic figure. And then, wasn't there an actor that maybe you didn't get along with so well? (laughs) Or is that just apocryphal? No, that's, uh, I think you're referring to Tom Waits. Um, Yeah. Tom and I, I I actually, I feel very bad about the whole thing. Uh, We didn't, we weren't getting along very well. I'm perfectly prepared to think that some of it was my fault. He did have issues. He had uh, he had some problems in his life, and it just wasn't working. So I took him out of the movie and did a quick rewrite, uh, and gave a lot of his material that he was going to have to the Michael Beck character. But as I say, I'm I'm not uh, proud of this at all. I think if I had been a better director, I might have gotten through to him better. But he was, we felt, a, a beginning to be a disruptive force. He has since apologized. He's written me a couple of letters, and he straightened himself out, and he's had a nice career, and I'm, I'm all for him. Yeah, he's the curly-headed uh, white guy, good-looking guy, and uh, you saw him as being uh, the next James Dean or a major... Uh Force. Well, I don't know about that, but I, I thought, <laughs> I thought he had a promising career. Yes. So, what was the issue? Just uh, creative differences. Yeah, I mean, there's no one specific thing. We just uh, it was the approach to the part, and and he wasn't getting along with all the rest of the cast very well. So it was just not a good situation. And, and he's the one who dies in the tussle with the police and gets thrown in front of the subway car? That's right. Oh, shit! Oh, oh you son of a... Run! Just get out of here! Well, warning to any actors out there. Play nice, sir. You might be thrown in front of a subway car. <laughs> Never to be heard from again. <laughs> Well, and then I had questions about the opening because, I mean, it's it's so epic. I mean, how many people, men, are in that scene? You meet up at a, at a park and um, you, I mean, why don't you describe what happens in that opening? But, but the logistics of that just seems mind-boggling. How did you get that to happen? Well, we, uh, the movie begins in Coney, Coney Island. The warriors talk about the conclave that's about to happen. And the great leader Cyrus is going to speak about the positions of the gangs within the city. So they take a subway 
up to the Bronx and they go to the conclave, which was most of our budget was in that scene. <laughs> and we had, uh, I don't know how many extras we had, but all these young, uh, and we had a lot of real gangs that were participating in that scene. And in that scene, Cyrus is giving a uh, very emotional speech about the possibility of the gangs taking over and having greater political power within the city, that it was all their turf. And uh, it's basically the dream of defunding the police. <laughs> uh, with, with um, yeah, writ large. And, uh, but in the middle of the speech, he's assassinated and the warriors are wrongfully blamed. And the word goes out that the gang from Coney is to be, because Cyrus was a popular leader, the gang from Coney should be hunted down. So our, our gang, the warriors are from Coney Island. We follow them from that point forward. Um, until they actually make it back to safety. One gang could run this city. One gang. Nothing would move without us allowing it to happen. We could tax the crime syndicates, the police, because we got the streets, suckers! Can you dig it? <laughs> The problem in the past has been the man turning us against one another. We have been unable to see the truth because we have been fighting for 10 square feet of ground. That's crap, brothers. The turf is ours by right because it's our turn. All we have to do is keep up the general truce. We take over one borough at a time. Secure our territory because it's all our turf. Yeah, so that scene, I mean, it's a, it's a, a cast of thousands. I mean, it feels like Cecil B. DeMille has landed in um, Coney well, Island. It, it actually isn't. I think we, it was the, I'd like to tell you the skillful use of positioning of the camera and the, it looks like there's a lot more people there than really were. Uh, <laughs> but that's the job we're supposed to do. I also have to say that the assistant director, David Sosna, uh, you know, I'd simply say, let's do this, this. He would go out there and have to do it and move hundreds of people, he and his team. And uh, Sosna was a great assistant director, especially with people. He was moving crowds and all that, a job I'm happy to say I did not have. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it definitely throws back to, you know, the great sword and sandal epics, but it's in this dystopian sci-fi, uh, you know, 1980s New York world. It's, it's very cool. Um, I absolutely love that opening. And then, of course, um, what actually happens is uh, someone from the, what are they called? The Rogues? Rogues, yeah. Yeah, kind of the uh, the Bad Seed gang, um, and it's a great character actor. I think his name is David Patrick Kelly. 
David Patrick Kelly, yes. Yeah. I've had the chance to work with him several times since. Um, right. I think some of these actors became part of your repertory, right? Some. Yeah. But he has that drawn face and uh, that wiry disposition. And uh, once you see him in one movie, you, you never forget him and you recognize him elsewhere. Uh, so he's the one who, who kills the leader. No. No. It wasn't us. It was them. The warriors. And, um, of course, at the very end, he has the iconic line, which I understand is improvised. Warriors come out to play. And he's clinking three Coca-Cola bottles on his fingers together. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. What can you tell us about that uh, iconic piece of, of filmmaking? Well, we were scrambling. Uh, it was towards the end of our shoot. And um, the, his car comes down and they were looking around. And I, uh, I said, to, I ran over to David and I said, look, this is dull. Uh, think of something here. Uh, I don't care what you want, you know. I don't care if you sing to him, yell at him, something, you're trying to pull him out. And uh, I went off to set the cameras and came back. And I had seen him out of the corner of my eye. He ran under the boardwalk and he came out with all these beer bottles, empty <laughs> beer bottles. So I ran back to the car and I said, <laughs> we got anything? And he said, and he went clink, clink, clink. He said, Warriors, come out and play. I said, this is what a good director I am. I said, go with that. Don't change it. Let's shoot. And, uh, but it was the kind of thing that with a gifted actor, if you create the atmosphere for the gifted actor to bring something, and he had it to bring. I mean, it, uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors, play it before every game. Really? Yeah, you know, it's the Warriors come out and play, and then the, <laughs> team, the team comes out. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know that. But, you know, I searched for Warriors on my Apple TV, and, and a Warriors game came up, and I was like, no, not that Warriors, but <laughs> that's so it's not funny to hear that. I, I should say that it's uh, if you have Showtime, it's it's available right now for streaming on Showtime. And it's uh, a beautiful, very vibrant, colorful print. I imagine that's what um, audiences saw back in 1979. So it's it's very much an eye candy movie. Uh, although it was a low budgeter, uh, the cameraman Andy Laszlo did a fabulous job, and uh, I'm eternally indebted. I did uh, three or four movies with Andy, and he's no longer with us. I'm sorry to say. But he was a he was a wonderful man, and uh, he he was a wonderful cameraman. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, left its print on Hollywood history, and I see it uh, inspiration in films like uh, Us, um, which had some boardwalk stuff, and uh, lots lots of others. 
It's a wonderfully visual film. I have a question about the marketing of it because I also associate the the logo, the the spray paint logo, as being just uh, so much part of of the the lore and uh, instantly recognizable. And do you know who came up with that uh, spray paint logo? Uh, that was Dan Perry. Okay. Who did the credits. And they could see that it was a good thing that Dan had done. So they incorporated that on the uh, one sheets and all that. But uh, uh, Dan Perry did uh, the credits and the title sequence. And we worked, Dan and I worked very, very much together on the editing of that whole sequence at the beginning. And Barry Dvorzon's music sets the really sets the tone, puts you in a mm-hmm. different place. So the, um, um, we got, I don't know about the rest of the movie, but we got the beginning quite right, I think. So. <laughs> it definitely grabs you. Um, and then, of course, the costumes. I mean, this this idea that the gangs had their, each had their own look. Was that written into the script, or how did you find the looks for all these different gangs? <laughs> Well, it was implied in the script. Yeah, it was. But, uh, you know, implications are one thing. And actually working it out, I had a very gifted uh, young woman named Bobby Mannix who basically worked in commercials. And uh, I kept telling her, go for it, go for it, go for it. It's don't, don't think anything's too weird. <laughs> and um, and she really delivered the goods. <laughs> I love that. So it became a hit. Did people understand that it was fantasy, or did was there copycat gangs running around in uh, in vests with the bare chest, well, there terrorizing was a lot of people, the subways? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they were terrorizing the subways. There were a lot of people that started wearing vests. Yes, and. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Look, it was a movie that caught on, and uh, what they—I think the the audience, the basic audience, was certainly very young. I think the um, audience went with the conceit of the film. Now, whether they would have articulated it in quite the way that you have, I, I, I suspect not. <laughs> but but they got it, you know. They knew it was not real, but at the same time, it got to their lives in some way. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's this moment where the sort of uh, Black Panther gang, uh, you know, a, a very big gang comes and they're they're kind of the cavalry. They kind of save them. They are at the darkest hour, and um, it, it does have a, a really nice social message about working together and um i don't know i just came away feeling like that that it had its head screwed on right and and it probably sent people home with with the right ideas well i I, i'm glad you brought that up because that was very much the idea i didn't want to end the scene the show with a big bloodbath at the end and i kept it muted you wanted to see the bad guys punished, certainly. But I didn't want to turn it into just a melee. I, I wanted a quiet, after this noisy movie, a kind of quiet resolution 
that didn't uh, overly agitate the audience, shall we say. And, and I thought that worked very nicely. For sure, yeah. I, just, I remember saying, here comes the cavalry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure over the years you've been asked to uh, reboot it, to sequelize it, to bring it into the 21st century. Why haven't we seen a, a Warriors read you? Well, Paramount announced, as you can tell from my remarks, I did not leave the lot um, on very good terms. And Paramount over the years, although I did come back oh, about five years later and I made 48 hours, um, and then came back another five years, I think, and did the sequel to 48 Hours. Paramount announced a sequel any number of times over the years. Tony Scott said he wanted to do one. Some other, some other fellas wanted to. Uh, they've spent uh, Larry Gordon, who really was the guy that uh, is a wonderful producer who got the movie on. He I think he persuaded the studio that it was like Saturday Night Live. Fever. <laughs> yeah, Saturday Night <laughs> Fever. And Larry had bought the book, brought me the book, said, would you do this? And I said, God, I'd love to do it, but I said, they'll never let us make it. I said, it's, you can't have any movie stars. It's not an easy movie to make. And uh, it's everything the studio's doing. He said, let me worry about that. And, um, you know, Larry got the movie on. He, by hook or crook, um, I, actually, I, I can't remember ever being asked to redo it. I've always said, people ask me, what do I think about Paramount remaking the movie? Because they kept making these announcements. And I said, I did mine. Good luck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> take your best shot. Um I do think it's, uh, well, Larry calls every once in a while, and he is, is privileged to the kind of top sheets and some of this. The studio spent something like five or six times the amount of money developing a sequel that has never been made than we did to make the movie. So that's a good illustration of, the, of what happens in this business. So Paramount still owns the rights? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't know much, but it seems to me like it's primed for a Westworld-style uh, adaptation, um, another cult uh, 70s sci-fi film that uh, they turned into um, a fairly engrossing, uh, but not amazing, um, you know, and very high-budget uh, sci-fi miniseries on HBO. Um, certainly, something along those lines would be enticing to me, so maybe we'll just put that out in the air. But only if Walter Hill is involved. <laughs> well, <laughs> Walter Hill's trying to get a couple of scripts finished at the moment. I'd like to do, <laughs> as long as I'm feeling good. Uh, I mean, look, you reach a point where you realize there's a lot more in the rearview mirror than there is through the windshield up ahead. Um, there aren't a lot of directors that are as old as I am that are still working. There are some. But How old are you? I'm 80. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, like I say, I feel good. And 
would like to uh, stay active. So we'll see. But I've got a movie coming out September 30th. And, you know, your ability to get your next movie has usually a lot to do with how your last movie does. But but it's very hard to talk about those things anymore because of streaming and limited right. access and theaters and, uh, you know, the entire business has changed. We used to go out in 2,000 theaters and now only very few movies do anything like that. And it's considered very high risk. Well, we should say that Dead for a Dollar is getting a theatrical release on September 30th. Yes. In U.S. and Canada from Quiver Distribution. It's a beautifully made uh, and and very captivating uh, Western with some really amazing performances. So I would encourage listeners to check it out. And um, Walter Hill, thank you so much. You've created really one of the most special films of all time. So I really thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. I think the thing about The Warriors, why it's so successful is because it's a vibe. I don't think you can point to any one performance or the dialogue, but just the entire feeling of it is something that has never quite been captured in it. And I think it's a testament to Walter Hill's singular uh, talent and vision. I mentioned during the interview that Pauline Kael, the legendary New Yorker film critic, was one of the early critics to give it a great review. This is what she wrote. In this vision, cops and kids are all there is, and the worst crime is to be chicken. The movie is like visual rock, and it's bursting with energy. The action runs from night until dawn, and most of it is in crisp, bright day-glow colors against the terrifying New York blackness. The figures stand out like a jukebox in a dark bar. I'm happy to say The Hollywood Reporter also acknowledged The Warrior's greatness in its original review. It wrote, while the Paramount Pictures presentation, due to the sensational subject matter, is obvious exploitation, there is an underlying sensitivity to the problems involved that keeps it from seeming overly exploitative. And like in the Pauline Kael review, it acknowledges that, quote, the production values are all outstanding and New York City is given a garish, nightmarish quality. So there you have it. If you haven't seen Warriors, I encourage you, go watch it now. It's on Showtime. And I think Pauline Kael really captured what I love about it. It's this candy-colored, dangerous, vibrant world that I'd never seen before. I really consider it a sci-fi classic, even though there's no spaceships or aliens in it. Anyway, I want to thank Walter Hill for continuing to make amazing work and for being so generous with his time. And next week, we have another candy-colored classic, but a much happier one, Grease. Pretty sure you've seen that one, but if you haven't, get the Paramount Plus and watch it. And we'll have the director, Randall Kleiser, telling us about how that musical classic was made. Until then, I'll see you in Hollywood. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.